five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. I'm Mark Boucher. This week on the Space Economy Podcast, my special guest is Andy Boyer, CEO of Cleos. It's been three and a half years since Andy was last on the show when the company was just getting started. Cleos is building a constellation of low Earth orbit satellites that detect and geolocate radio frequency transmissions to identify hidden and illegal activity. When we last spoke, Cleos didn't have any satellites on orbit. But things have definitely changed. Listen in. Welcome back, Andy, to the Space Economy Podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Mark. It's hard to believe it's been three and a half years since you were last on the show. At that time, you had just gone public at the Australian Stock Exchange and had signed up uh, GOM Space to build 20 satellites that detect and geolocate radio frequency transmissions from space to identify hidden and illegal activity. Since we last talked, you've managed to launch 12 satellites uh, in clusters of four, with the most recent launch earlier in April. Uh, that launch was for, for what you're calling the patrol mission of four formation flying satellites. In June of 2021, you launched four vigilance mission satellites. And in November of 2020, you launched the original four scouting uh, mission satellites. Before we do a, a dive into your latest developments, could you please provide me a brief outline of how the company has executed and changed since you were last on the show in the fall of 2018? It's a, it's a, it's a great question. I think it's fair to say we are probably unrecognizable in a lot of senses to, to that business uh, at, at that stage. Um, you know, putting aside the, the, the challenges getting satellites into space, getting them built, um, we had uh, challenges with getting the first launch of scattering satellites launched through COVID um, in India that delayed them a year almost in terms of launch, which was an incredibly difficult thing for a, a startup to, to go through in terms of a, in terms of a delay. You know, our business can't generate revenue without um, having satellites in space, and uh, that delay really did cause us a lot of issues. And we thankfully we had some very good shareholders who supported us through that time period. Uh, and got us to, to, to the next stage of growth, which is then the more commercial satellites, which we've launched recently, the vigilance and then patrol satellites. So the, in terms of putting aside space, uh, how we developed as a business, just to answer your question there, um, you know, we have, we've evolved, we've grown, we've learned how to be a public company, I think is fair to say. You know, there was a lot of naivety to a certain extent um, in, in IPOing so early in the business. And, what it meant to be a public company and why uh, it was a good thing. I think the, uh, the, the positive still stand. It gives us access to capital. It gives us access to growth um, uh, uh, capital. Uh, there are challenges with being public and a space company. Space companies are to an inherently long lead item companies. You know, it takes a long time to get satellites into orbit and get them operational and generating revenues. And capital markets want news they want things to happen they, for good reason you know and, and i can understand that um but what we often struggle with in in space is is sort of creating that short-term news because there's sort of periods of long periods of sort of seemingly nothing and then a launch and then a long period of seemingly nothing and in reality we've got a whole team of people working furiously 
24 hours around the clock, seven days a week, making stuff happen in our company and also all of our vendors that support us through, through what we do. Um, so we've changed structurally. We've uh, evolved the board to be you know, an independent majority board now. Um, so brought in some very skilled uh, staff, including our most recent um, uh, director who joined the board, Padraig McCarthy, who's uh, ex-CFO of SES. So bringing somebody like Padraig on to really help us at that next stage of growth in the business has been, been transformational, I would say. Um, he has added a lot of traditional space sector experience in, in, into the business, which we've benefited from. Uh, we've also evolved the management team, so we now have a fully, you know, tooled up exec suite. Um, so rather than, you know, the one or two founders doing most of the sort of heavy lift, we have a, a, a great chief operations officer who came from the banking sector and has really um, uh, made the business much more stable, much more uh, capable in a lot of ways. We have a, a great chief revenue officer who was uh, president of Rycon and, and an executive at, at Maxar um, and has brought a, a, an incredible amount of experience, including teaching me what a chief revenue officer actually is, which is not what I thought it was when I recruited one. So I, I learned a lot through that process too. Um, we brought in, a, a, we've changed the technical team around as well. That was, that was quite a, uh, an interesting process. What we were finding was the single role of a CTO was proving to be uh, deeply complex for one person to do, to both look after the ongoing development of what we are doing, but also looking over the horizon as to what we should be doing next. So uh, we split that role into two. So we have a CTO and a chief innovation officer who is looking at the future technologies, where we should be going, how we should be responding to our customers' needs. The market is moving so fast that being able to keep on top of that is really is a full-time job in terms of maximizing our opportunities. So we brought in a CTO, Vinnie Furia, who um, uh, was aspiring before us, a tremendously experienced of launching small satellites and getting them operational. Um, he's, uh, he's been great for us as well. And uh, Miles, who's one of you know, my co-founder, moved into the chief innovation officer role, looking at that forward uh, uh, forward thinking type um, work, which, is, which has been great for us as well. And so we've, we've really built a, a solid team around those different business functions um, and how those business functions operate. And so as a, you know, as a, as a we're, not, we're really out of a startup mode now, I'd say, much more capable, much more um, in the production and deliverable type mode and, and able to really maximize our opportunity and be able to cope with that. A lot of the things three and a half years ago I didn't realize we didn't have in place, but I now realize we didn't have in place. You know what I mean? As we've developed them, so I think we're in a we're in a great place to maximize our opportunity with the satellites we've got in orbit, the satellites we've yet to launch, and uh, and hopefully grow, you know, into the into the business we need to be in the next couple of years. So, how many employees uh, approximately are are you up to now? Um, so we're still a relatively small company. We have, we have um, forty direct employees. Uh, still, uh, you know, and we have some modest growth in that this year, not massive growth. Uh, we, the way that we operate, we don't do any vertical integration. So we do a, a lot of um, vendor management in terms of the satellite build, satellite operation. Um, we do a lot of work. Um, what we've concentrated on from an engineering perspective, and vast majority of those 40 are engineers, obviously, uh, is the ground-based signal processing, the work required to get the data off the satellites and then do something with it that the customer needs. So building our intellectual property and our 
capability or assets on the ground. Right. And leave, letting the satellite builders do their thing um, because there's a fantastic supply chain there from a satellite builder perspective. It's worth noting we don't use common space, we use uh, 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 innovative solutions in space, ISIS space in, in the Netherlands now for building our satellites. Right. Now, uh, I just want to revisit one of the things that you mentioned. Um, you went public very early um, and you went public on the Australian Stock Exchange to start with, and I believe now you're on the Frankfurt Exchange. Um, how how was that experience, uh, and would you do it again the way you did it? <laughs> depends, on what, depends on what day you're asking me, I guess. Um, you know, and well, uh, I will note I will note for for so that the the, the audience does uh, know this. The stock, which was uh, started off very low, uh, I think something like twenty cents or something like that, actually has it did start to grow once you started to launch um your satellites uh, last year so the stock has uh increased in price to around 60 cents or so uh yeah. australian so you've had some growth so uh, yeah and, and, and we we have uh you know we we dropped down to eight nine ten cents at one point you know it is uh um it's we are or for a long time we're a pre-revenue company um i think that the the stock price the, th the thing that took a little bit of time to get used to was that the listed company is not really the same business as the business you're running. And sometimes they align. So sometimes the share price aligns with the value in the business, and sometimes it doesn't. And you have to manage those two thoughts in your head in terms of, in terms of making the right decisions. And I think one of the things that perhaps I did, you know, we did wrong in the early days, and we don't do it in any way shape or form is react to the share price now because you can't run your business on the basis of the share price we run our business on our business model uh, on our business plan and we execute against that uh, against the fantastic business opportunity we have and the share price will reflect that at the appropriate times um, rather than the other way around where you're it's the tail wagging the dog almost where you're seeing the share price go down and you're trying to react to your business and change things or pivot or do whatever you can in order to, to do something about that. That isn't good for shareholders and it's certainly in the long term, it's certainly not good for the business or employees in any way, shape or form. So we, we uh, as, as we've matured over the last three plus years, is really getting into that position where we can um, be more circumspect about it um, and, and, and concentrate on the long term objectives and building value for our shareholders over the longer term. Uh, one last question on that thread. Um, any early plans to uplift the stock to another exchange at some point, or you're just going to build the business and, and at some point maybe consider that? Yeah, I, I think that there is, um, that could form part of our plans in the longer term for sure. I think, you know, if we think that there's an opportunity to add value to our shareholders by increasing liquidity on another exchange, for instance, then that's something we'd certainly look at doing. Um, you've got to balance that out in the sense of it's an expensive exercise to go through. And so, you know, that, that would cost, you know, X number of millions of, of dollars in order to make that happen. So that has to, that, that cost has to be balanced out by that increased liquidity or increased value for our shareholders. I think in terms of marketplaces, the SX is a, is a good marketplace to be on. It's very positive. Um, there is good liquidity there. But from an industry perspective, our business is really, you know, US focused to a certain extent in terms of customer base. 
And certainly the US understands our market, what we're doing, the defense sector, the, the, you know, how we're delivering our product is certainly understood here very well. Um, and so you could see that being part of our success story long term. But it's, as I say, it really needs to be done at the right point um, with the right market cap and the business being in the right place in terms of stability, et cetera. It's so early to do it right now. All right. So with all the background information you've given me, let's talk about some of the more recent developments. Um, like I said earlier this month, you launched your four patrol mission satellites. Um, have all satellites been uh, deployed and reached their intended orbit? And how long will it take for them to uh, get commissioned? So the um, those that particular uh, set of four satellites were launched on the SpaceX transporter launch that went up in the beginning of April on a deorbit orbital transfer vehicle. So we, um, as you know, there's, there's an interface usually between the satellites and the, the SpaceX launch vehicle itself, sometimes a plate, sometimes an orbital transfer vehicle. Um, in this case, we were on the deorbit OTV. This was very useful for us because the deorbit OTV is able to um, make maneuvers in space um, that enabled us to control more of where we were going to be dispensed into, into what orbit. So we fly our satellites in clusters of four, basically two pairs in, in two different planes. Um, so what we did was we, we deployed two, the first two satellites very quickly, seven days after launch. And then there's a 30 day period, which I think is next week it finishes, uh, where we deploy our second two clusters, but into the right, almost into exact formation that we need. That reduces a lot of time on the back end because it means that we don't have that slow process of flying our satellites into the right formation, which is which is slow, um, and the deorbit has cut a lot of our, our, our flying time out there. We still have to commission the satellites, and obviously there's still a, a time period involved in that, um, and you know, we're clearly working through that as quickly as we can, but that's, that's basically the process too, and then two, to reduce that formation flying time period. I think from a, just to cover off the commissioning time period, um, we uh, uh, our, our vigilant satellites, which was our first cluster of ISIS space satellites, um, we have been through a, a long process of getting the software right on those satellites um, with, with our uh, software team. That's taken quite a long time. Um, now you know now done, but that software will then be put on to the uh, second cluster of ISIS space satellites, our third cluster overall, uh, the, um, the patrol mission. And so that will speed our commissioning time up because we don't have to deal with all this sort of, we're making use of all the learnings we've learned over the last you know, six months or so. Right, so that, that leads into my next question, which you partly answered, which was, uh, has the hardware and capabilities of the patrol mission satellites change compared to the the previous vigilance mission satellites and if so how so you did already mention the, the software side of things that you made some changes were there any hardware changes or is it all the same hardware no it, it, we 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 tweak things as we're going along with every launch is the is the objective uh from you know in making improvements with power and, and what have you but the big change with the patrol satellites is we've got another payload on that so we're collecting the X band as well as in the VHF bands. Um, so we do quite wide area surveillance with quite wide frequency ranges, um, which enables us to pick up a lot of information across different bands. So the, the additional SDR, the additional payload on, on the patrol mission is, 
brings us another sensor suite essentially to add more more value to the customer. All right. So um, I'm going to skip a couple questions because uh, to continue with the the, the flow on this, um, your next launch is the Observer mission. Um, how is the Observer mission then going to be different from the Patrol mission? The Observer mission is, is actually the same. Uh, they're exactly the same. same cookie cutter design. Uh, um, okay. Those those satellites are the same um, in terms of in terms of their design. That was really the only way that we could achieve the quick sort of uh, lead times between launches that we right. required in order to deliver those. So yeah, we've kept those pretty much identical. And is that launch still scheduled for mid-year? It is still scheduled for mid-year. We, um, we are doing some assessment at the moment on some launch load information that we've had, and uh, that may change it to be a little bit later, but not a lot later. So it's still in that time period broadly. Would that be still be on a transporter mission, or, it would be, or yeah, it would be on a transporter. Yeah. Okay, and I've there I've lost track of when that one, the next one is. I think it was supposed to be June, but and then they have one in October. Yeah, June and yeah, October, right. I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah they're, they're pretty close to each other. Those two. That's right. Yeah. Um, all right, I'll revisit this uh, in in a second because I want to talk about what comes after that. But first, let, let's let, let's talk about some other things that have happened more recently, which is uh, you recently partnered with Satlogic. Uh, what was the thinking behind the partnership there? Well, we we partner with a lot of companies. I think it's, it's fair to say, you know, we um, uh, where we sit in the marketplace is we're a, we're a data collector. You know, so we're a census suite collecting data, um, and we sell that data through an integration layer. So these are guys that have got software. They might be a toolmaker. They might be um, a data fusion expert, they might be a consultant, whatever it might be. They might be a huge multinational company. And we work with a number of uh, integrators around the world, data fusion people, what we call application developers. These are the people bringing different data sets together and solving complex problems for particular end users. So that's our way into, it means that we only sell through one layer, but it means we access uh, an end user in, in any variant because the application developer is developing a specific application for that end user. So we work through those partners, whether it's Satellogic or L3 Harris or in Canada, GSTS, we work very closely with uh, in Nova Scotia. Um, we've got partners around the world that we sell support for them to develop applications with our data that solve particular uh, end use problems. And that's, and Satellogic for an example of that. They're obviously integrating the data with the imagery that they have um, to deliver you know, particular solutions for particular customers. I'm curious how many partners you have in this, uh, in this respect. In terms of integration partners, what are we up to now? It's 70 plus integration partners mm -hmm. around the world. Okay. Yeah, yeah, there, there is a lot. Um, uh, there's, there's some fantastic companies out there doing, um, doing complementary things to each other, actually, you know, in terms of the AI ML space. Um, the, it, 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 this week, we've been uh, exhibiting a GeoInt Geo in Denver, right. which is an absolutely brilliant conference for, the, for our sector. Um, and what it does is it shows the breadth of that integrator base, those application developers that are around the world and attending this conference. And each of them are bringing something specific for particular end use cases that would be impossible for us to address as a, as a data provider, if you like. So what we try and do is, is build up that integrated base, 
that complements each other because they're working with different end users that, that we can then monetize, basically. And uh, you also recently announced uh, what you're calling mission as a service. Uh, this is something new, a new service. So who are you targeting? And, and give us a little more information on that. Yeah, we're really excited about, about mission as a service. I think if I explain sort of the difference between data as a service and the mission as a service business models, our data as a service business model is we use a certain amount of capacity of satellites to collect data of a certain area, and we sell that same data set to lots of different people. Basic data as a service model, we own the data, we have the use rights. But what we're finding is that there are particular um, you know, government customers, especially, that have specific areas of interest that they want to look at that don't fit into that model because they will use part of our capacity, but there's really only one customer for that area. It's a dedicated portion of capacity. And perhaps that customer wants to do some more tasking. They want to change the part of the spectrum that we're looking at. They want to uh, do more interaction with the data sets. They want more data usage rights. So what we wanted to do is respond to that rather than saying, nope, that doesn't fit in with our data as a service model, you can't have it, is to be able to offer a portion of our capacity of the satellites to that specific mission. And when we say mission in this sense, we're talking about the customer mission. What are they trying to achieve and how do we respond to that? So we've, we're offering the mission as a service to say, you tell us what you want, we will deliver that capacity for that particular mission to solve your problem, to solve whatever it is. And we can do that with existing assets. But obviously, there's a financial cost to that because it means that we're not using that same capacity over the commercial areas of interest that fulfill data as a service contracts. So we have to cost that in a different way in terms of the way we we're pricing that up. But it was really that that was the objective because the, the data as a service model forces you almost into a numbers game where it becomes a sort of Dutch auction as to well what area has the most customers for it so we'll collect over that area but that doesn't mean you're that could mean you're missing out on some areas of interest that are very valuable to a particular single end user and that's what we're trying to address. Right so to achieve uh, all these goals you need uh, satellites and more of them so you've got the the 12 on orbit now are, are the scout uh, satellites actually contributing or or were they just uh, primarily demonstration? A bit of both. Um, so their their mission was to uh, was to demonstrate, to prove the technology worked, to do the geolocation, which they've done extremely well, and we can we can very accurately geolocate from them. Um, they have got less capacity to collect data than the subsequent satellites that we launched, because we obviously learned a lot through that initial process. Um, and then they so they are enabling if you like those demonstrator missions to show um, collects over areas that are less commercial, for instance. So it enables us to use them continually as a demonstrator, but to do different testing on them, um, to, um, to experiment with them. So they both deliver, if you like, a revenue capability as well as a demonstrator capability. Now, in terms of the number of satellites, uh, your original plan was uh, the or actually, no, I think if, if I remember correctly, you were originally going to put up 20 satellites. Now, from what I've read, it's 20 clusters of four satellites. Is that right? Yeah, that's a, it's up to 20 clusters of four satellites is, is where the model takes us to. And so it's a right. sort of maximum number to a certain extent. Now, we see the, and the reason why we don't ever give a specific number is that our marketplace is evolving and maturing as well. So the customer needs and requirements are evolving. We're responding to that with our new offering. 
but the amount of data, the volume of data that they want and what they're willing to pay for in terms of additional revisit rates, uh, additional uh, capacity and how much more uplift they're willing to pay for is evolving. And so what we're trying to do is match our constellation to that rather than saying, right, we're going to launch everything as a field of dreams type exercise and then just hopefully we'll sell it. We are going to, we're sort of matching our model as best we can to where we see that in the near term going. So that's that's the um, that's the deployment route. At the moment, it's uh, it's likely going to top out about 12 to 13 clusters operational in space based on our current modeling. Um, but you know that that's ultimately down to the down to the customer interest. And in in, in discussing that and discussing the revisit rate. Is, is the modeling telling you that 12 to 13 will satisfy the revisit rate needed for your current customers and potential yeah. ones that you're talking future customers? Yeah, exa exactly. That, that's this balance between additional cost. So you go to 14 clusters, it doesn't improve your revisit rate that much because you're already sub hour, you know, you're taking minutes off it at that point. So, you know, you've got this balance point to say, okay, well, we can offer you more data more often, but it's going to be start to become exponentially more costly per minute at that point because of the relative uh, benefit of launching more clusters. So it's getting that balance right and having that conversation with the customer that at which point does the value start to depreciate versus the cost to, to put up more, more satellites. So at this stage, um, how much funding, or sorry, I shouldn't put it that way. Um, how many satellites do you have funding for at the moment to, to, to build out uh, your um, clusters? So at the moment, we were funded through to cluster uh, four, which is, as we, as we talked about launching um, later on this year. Um, so that's the, those satellites are funded and, and, and launched. We are then going to a point of um, uh, building up our revenues over the next couple of quarters because we have various satellites coming onto operation uh, and enabling us to show that business model working. At which point we'll start to um, we'll start to uh, uh, you know develop the, the capital needs plan for the capex really next year. Right. So you're you're looking to uh, uh, building up that revenue to help in part pay for the next uh, build phase. Uh, and I'm sort of hearing that you'll probably have to do another raise uh, to get some more funding. Not necessarily. So what we want to be able to do is when you're generating revenue and showing the models working and showing that we're getting to profitability and EBITDA positive and all those great things is that it opens up other funding opportunities because for instance, the way you would conventionally uh, in space fund satellite building Old space, if you like, is debt, and um, and you fund it through because you're you're buying capex. You fund that capex through debt. Um, as long as you can service that debt, that's the more that we can service the debt, the reduced um, uh, the reduced cost of that debt will be, and therefore that then is a cheaper way of financing satellites than going to the capital market and taking dilution. So there's a balancing act there between those two different things as we as we move forward. So the important thing is is that we give ourselves that optionality through delivering and executing against our business plan, and then we can take a view on what the best option is to how we finance those future satellites. So in talking about uh, the market that you want to serve, 
Um, I mean, you started off as primarily a uh, EU-based company within a U.S. subsidiary. Um, you have obviously the U.S. market is important to your business, but if I understand correctly, you are limited in some respects on the defense side. Is that still the case? Where, uh, from what I read, you, you you needed to set up a proxy board for the U.S. subsidiary so that you could get more of the defense-type contracts. I think. Long term, we may need to do that. Uh, I think the thing that setting up a proxy board does is it enables you to access more of the classified domain. So we can access defense contracts now in the unclassified domain. And, and um, you know, we're a foreign entity in the US and we, we sell as a foreign entity, obviously, and um, or foreign controlled entity, I should say. And we can access contracts and, and, and deliver into those. And even those traditionally closed to us are beginning to open up as well. That's, that's evolving rapidly over the last few months in terms of um, doors that were closed are now open. Um, I think long term, and again, this is similar conversation we were having earlier. There's a huge cost to putting a proxy board in, in place. And I don't mean just necessarily hiring people, but it divides the company because the, the US uh, uh, independent entity with the proxy board can't communicate openly with the head office and everything else that's going in Europe. That is, that builds in a lot of inefficiency and therefore that inefficiency equals cost and that cost equals, you have to pass that cost on to a customer. So that increases pricing from a customer perspective. So we have a balancing act there in terms of at what point is the right time to invest in that type of activity versus at the moment staying almost in the unclassified you know, public domain and just being, you know, uh, uh, openly a foreign entity and maximizing the opportunities that we have already. So I think the, the, uh, you know, the point with, with that is there isn't a single way to skin a cat here. And I think we, we have advantages being a foreign entity at times and we have sometimes have disadvantages and we've got to balance those out as we, as we grow. Um, I think I've got all my questions covered for today, and I, we covered quite a bit of ground. Uh, I'm wondering if there's anything I, I, I should have asked that I didn't ask about the business, and if there's anything else that you think that uh, would be relevant to the uh, to my audience. Uh, no, I don't think so. I, I think the um, I think the industry that we work in is going through some very interesting uh, changes. We have a lot of compared to three and a half years ago, where you know we were pretty much the only listed very early stage health observation company, I think it's, it's fair to say, uh, to now having more peers listed through the DSPAC process, with Spire, and Black Sky and Planet, et cetera, who are bigger and more mature than us as a, as a business. But seeing how they've evolved and the way that they've uh, they've grown, it's been a, uh, an interesting process to observe that, to see, see how we can differentiate and, and move our company forward. So I think there's, there's the industry is, there's a lot more information than there used to be uh, because of the public nature of all these businesses. And that creates some challenges for us, but it also does create opportunities. So that brings up another question that I just thought of, which is, are we going to see um, uh, more players into the market in the short term, or are we going to see some consolidation uh, based on market factors right now? I've been calling consolidation for a couple of years and I because I, I think that I think that the, it, for me it makes sense to bring different sensor types into into a single entity or um, sensor through to integration to application developer through to um, um, you know analytics provider um, there's integration 
possibilities across domains, whether you're doing, you know, drone-based sensing, hail or mail sensing versus space-based sensing. I think there's opportunities in consolidation in that as well. So, I, I, you know, I've yet to be proven right on that, but it, it, it feels, it makes sense to me from an efficiency perspective to consolidate um, certain parts of this, this marketplace, because that would deliver a better value to the customer that they have more than one sensor suite under one roof, if you like. So that brings the natural question of, are you looking at uh, uh, acquiring or, uh, you know, merging with anybody else at this time? I think we are focused on delivering and executing our business plan as it stands, is the, is the, is the um, you know, honest answer there. We do see opportunities out there, but we have uh, a lot of work to do just delivering our own plan today and i think that's what we should be concentrating on for a period of time um until we've proven that we can make profit with this business and i think that's going to be a a massive game changer for us that to show that you can be a profitable earth observation company profitable uh new space company profitable public entity and i think that that will change people's perceptions of the industry and our business and uh, other opportunities all right so we'll leave it at that and we will revisit with you. Uh, we won't wait three and a half years for the next uh, interview um, because I think things are going to move a little faster now. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's, you know, I, I, I hope so. In the context of space, which is a slow old industry to work in for sure. And um, even in the new space sector, which is still pretty slow uh, compared to other sectors, I think there are other industries. Um, yeah, things are, things are beginning to uh, move at a pace now, that's for sure. Well, when you can deliver a product by having your satellites in space, things are starting to move fast. It's helpful. It's helpful. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much, Andy. And we will uh, touch base uh, in the near future. Thank you, sir. Well, that's a wrap on this episode. Your feedback is very much appreciated. You can send us a comment or a guest recommendation to podcast at spaceq.ca. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at The Economy Space. And you can also support the podcast by writing a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to us. Until next time.